Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. The April recess is officially behind us as Congress returns to town this week. The Senate will be working on nominations while the House is scheduled to take up a bill to keep the U.S. in the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement, H.R. 9, or the Climate Action Now Act. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Danielle Parnas. And I'm Adam Shank. The House is also scheduled to take up a slate of bills that touch on states using federal money for target ranges and improving tribal fishing sites on the Columbia River, among other things. But the headline bill this week and the focus of this episode is H.R. 9, a part of the House Democrats' broader climate agenda. We've brought legislative analyst Adam Taylor and Bloomberg Environment reporter Tiffany Stecker here to help us break it down. Welcome. Thanks. Let's start with H.R. 9 in the climate agreement. Can you guys give us some quick background on the deal and why Democrats say this bill is necessary? Yeah. So uh, in 2015, uh, the UN Convention on Climate Change got together in Paris for uh, a a long negotiation. They agreed to it right at the end of 2015 and signed it on Earth Day. 2016, it agreed to prevent global temperature rise of more than two degrees and try to make best efforts to keep it to one and a half degrees Celsius, which is the level a lot of climate scientists say is where the catastrophic changes really kick in. Right. It's important to note that this is only a voluntary agreement. It's a non-binding, and all of the countries, I believe it's uh, almost 200, 192 countries agreed to set targets to reduce carbon emissions by a certain date. Uh, In the U.S.'s case, it was at least 26 percent from 2005 levels by 2025. And those, that pledge was pretty consistent with Obama-era regulatory policies and, and legislative policies that the Obama administration pursued, but Congress didn't necessarily go for it. So Obama methane emissions rules and the, the Clean Power Plan and the other power plant emissions standards that the Obama administration was pushing, and even uh, passenger vehicle fuel efficiency, all of that was, was tied up in the U.S.'s nationally decided contribution is what they call the voluntary pledges. And they they said, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to make best efforts to get to 28%, but we're pledging 26% reduction from 2005 levels. And so what are Democrats and Republicans saying, you know, about this deal in general, but specifically HR9 that we're seeing come up this week? So President Trump campaigned uh, against a lot of Obama-era foreign policy and climate policy, and this was was kind of that nexus of both of them. And he he announced in June 17 that we that the U.S. would withdraw, but he can't do that right away. Right, the U.S. cannot withdraw before November 4th, 2020. And so, what President Trump did was say he was going to pull out of this agreement, what H.R. 9 would do was would prevent the administration from doing so and require the president to submit a plan to that would delineate exactly how uh, the administration will reduce emissions by 2025. So what's the mechanism then that this bill would use to keep the U.S. in the deal? It's it's almost an appropriations writer. It, It blocks the use of federal funds to take any steps to withdraw the U.S. So if you're a government employee, your your salary is paid. You cannot use your official time or your official position to do anything that withdraws the U.S. from the the Paris Agreement. This bill was kind of hurried through the House uh, so far. It, It got two committee markups, neither of which had any changes 
And the, there's kind of a, they backed their way into a legislative hearing. They said that a foreign affairs committee hearing on climate change was good enough for a legislative hearing on this. And that's one of the big Republican opposition points to this is is there wasn't a regular process for this. It was rushed to the floor. That's right. And Republicans have submitted many, many sub- uh, amendments to this bill, many of which are along the lines of showing that other countries like China and India need to commit as much of the US as the US in any sort of agreement. Also amendments to promote the use of natural gas or carbon capture or hydropower, these low carbon sources of energy that are promoted by Republicans. Another one of their big contentions is that the Paris Agreement was never submitted to Congress for approval. It wasn't treated like a treaty. It was an executive agreement. And President Obama joined the agreement through his executive authority. It was never ratified. And so Congress never had any input on the development of this 26 to 28% pledge or the, the general target overall of two degrees Celsius. So Republicans are saying we are just blindly signing on to these pledges that a previous administration made without input from Congress, and we're just blindly ratifying those now. And that that shouldn't be the approach we take. We should take a a longer process and a more measured approach. And that executive approach from Obama is essentially what's allowing President Trump to withdraw unilaterally at at this point. Exactly. Uh, He can can withdraw unless Congress passes a a bill like this to stop him. There's really nothing stopping him from pulling out because it wasn't approved by the Senate. Yeah, I think one other thing is interesting. You mentioned an appropriations writer, and I think that's probably a good sign that we'll see similar requirements in, in appropriations bills this this summer as Congress gets through that, the spending process for fiscal 2020. Yeah, the, the state foreign ops uh, appropriations bill and the interior environment bill are both candidates for a writer just like this. Now, let's pivot here. Uh, this bill might not even be the most well-known climate proposal. The Green New Deal was unveiled earlier this year with a lot of fanfare or consternation, depending on your point of view. And it was uh, introduced by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. What's happening with that? It, it's funny because the, the party that's actually pushing votes on the Green New Deal right now uh, is the Republicans, not, <laughs> not the Democrats. <laughs> Democratic leaders are, they don't oppose the Green New Deal necessarily, but they haven't gotten on board with it. Just to, to go back, the, the Green New Deal is essentially a non-binding resolution that would set out goals to decarbonize the U.S. economy or, or at least make it net neutral, so a net zero emitter of carbon and other greenhouse gases within 10 years. And to do that, there would be a massive mobilization of, of public resources, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II and the New Deal. Right. The Senate did hold a vote on the Green New Deal. It failed. Uh, The Democrats voted present and uh, no Republicans voted for it. Steve Scalise, the House Minority Whip, is pushing for a discharge petition to bring the Green New Deal for a vote in the House. What that would require is 218 members to sign on saying, we want to vote on this. Uh, I believe he's around 20 votes. He would need about 20 Democrats to sign on to that petition, which is pretty unlikely. Going back to the the Senate vote, the just an example of the gymnastics we're seeing around the Green New Deal. That was a joint resolution introduced by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a major opponent of the Green New Deal. He He's among several Republicans who call it kind of a Trojan horse for socialism. Democratic leaders, though, are looking at bills like H.R. 9, things that have more popular support and are a little bit more uh, middle of the road in their approach. Rather than trying to revolutionize the U.S. economy, they are taking what, what measured steps they think they can in a divided government 
government to you know, make progress on, on climate goals. Uh, we should also note that uh, H.R. 9 is being introduced by Congresswoman Kathy Castor. She is the chairwoman of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. This is really her first big climate bill uh, legislation, and it has the backing of leadership, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And so this is kind of a big moment for her as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think sort of to tie these two things together, you know, the, the climate committee that the House had when they uh, when the Democrats were in power last time, they had a similar committee about climate change. And as part of the Green New Deal and its sort of non-binding provisions call for various reductions in emissions, do you think, you know, this is sort of the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, legislatively from the Democrats? Could we see, you know, with the revival of the climate committee, the them bringing back bills from the last time they were in the majority to address climate change? Yeah, I think that's a, a definite possibility. You, you mentioned the last time Democrats were in the majority in the House, they they passed a carbon cap and trade bill that went nowhere in the Senate, even though it was democratically controlled as well. They just couldn't get enough kind of coal state Democrats on board in the Senate. And they also had some defections from the left because it was a very complicated cap and trade system that, that some progressives and climate hawks felt didn't go far enough and kind of made it too easy for power plants to keep emitting. How about um, carbon tax or fee legislation? Um, you know, that's been introduced and has seems to have some industry support. Yeah, that's that's an interesting case because there's there's actually a little bit of bipartisan support. There are some Republicans who are even on board and the, the oil and gas industry it has even gotten behind some of the, the carbon tax or carbon fee bill. And uh, the way this these bills would generally work is you'd collect a fee on all the carbon that's emitted at the point of production. So when you pull the oil out of the ground or when you refine it, or at, at some point there'd be a fee per ton of carbon emitted by that fuel source that goes to the federal government. It goes into a special fund that then gets rebated to every family or every individual in the country to essentially offset those uh, the, the price increases that they would see and also act a, as a little bit of redistribution of wealth because if you're wealthier, you're probably going to spend more money on power, but you're going to get the same rebate as the poor family that, that just keeps their lights on and nothing else. Right. There's some a little bit of bipartisan support on carbon tax, notably Francis Rooney, Congressman Francis Rooney of Florida, a Republican, a Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. Those are the two members on the on, on the Republican side that are in favor of a tax. But most of the co-sponsors for this legislation are Democrats. Another area where we might see some bipartisan action on climate change is carbon capture and storage. There's a bill in the Senate uh, that is uh, that was introduced by Senator John Barrasso, who is the chairman of uh, Environment and Public Works Committee. There's uh, another bill in the House as well, both of which would raise money and uh, promote research and development for carbon capture and storage. Yeah, that's a technology that basically scrubs the carbon out of smokestacks and puts it in a form that can be put into the ground, uh, whether it's tapped later or, or reused as fuel later, or it just goes into a sink to, to keep it from getting into the atmosphere. It's still pretty early days. I don't think there's been a successful commercial application of that technology yeah, yet. That's right. It's, it's very early. And I think that there is a need for more money and uh, research in this with some federal support. So looking ahead to the to some of these bills, what are the prospects in the Senate? You already mentioned that Mitch McConnell is a pretty staunch opponent of these things. You know, does that effectively close the door then? I think it's it's tough to say. I think if you got enough of his caucus pushing in one direction, you could see it. But I, I don't want to make bald predictions, but it's hard to see a lot of Senate Republicans enough to move the needle getting behind raising energy taxes right before the presidential election in 2020. 
Great. Well, thanks, Tiffany and Adam. Bloomberg Government subscribers can find more news and analysis of the climate debate on Capitol Hill at BGov.com. That's it for us. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.